Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'll be teaching today. Uh, we're going to reflect on that passage that Holly read from the book of James. Uh, the New York Times ran an article a couple weeks ago, almost at the beginning of the month, uh, that mentioned that Yale University uh, has a class now that they've just introduced that is the most popular class that's ever happened in the university, and it's on um, discovering the happiness of life. They cannot get uh, enough seats available for students to take the class. And uh, the article goes on to talk about that students are so obsessed with the control of their lives and uh, being able to determine their careers, what's going to happen to them, where life is going to go, that it's just driven them to the point of anxiety where they cannot begin to process and think about a happy life. And what the article then begins to say is that the pursuit of control and knowing and determining our future is not something that we can live with. Almost the next week, uh, there was an article in the LA Times that was reflecting on uh, 2017 as a year that was filled with um, political unrest, uh, fear of nuclear warfare, uh, countless natural disasters that affected this community particularly in dangerous ways. And what the author of that article went on to say is that uh, the thought of not knowing your future and the thought of not having control is not something we can live without. So almost, you know, on the piggyback of one another, we can't live with control, but we also can't live without it. Which one? Which is, which is the wise way to live life? This text that we are, we're going to look at and reflect on, what James says is just utterly counterintuitive to both of those. Living with control or not living with control. And he wants to talk about how we're going to think about our lives, how you're going to think about life going forward in your future, in your plans that you're going to make, that we want to control them, we want to know, but also there's a fear of not being able to know and not being able to control that. And James wants to sort of throw a bucket of water in your face to give you a perspective of wisdom on how to think going forward. And he's going to do it by talking sort of about a foolish way that we go into thinking about our future. Now, when we say a fool, uh, a fool for us today is somebody usually that we uh, insult, that we disagree with. We don't think they're very intelligent or they, they think the wrong perspective on this topic, but that's not a biblical view of the worst. Of, uh, that's not how the biblical writers use the word fool. The biblical writers would use the word fool to describe somebody who is completely out of touch with reality and makes self-destructive choices because of that. And so, what James wants to do for us is to give us a perspective on reality, a perspective on our future, on our plans, on the way that we're going to think about our life. And it's not going to be that we have to have control, and it's not going to be that we can't live without control, but it's something completely off the map of that. And so here's what you need to know in order to live a wise life going forward for thinking about your future in life. You need to know these four things. You need to stop trying to know. Secondly, because you can't know. But thirdly, there's something we can know. And fourthly, how can you actually know that? So you have to stop trying to know. Secondly, because you can't. Thirdly, but there is something to know. Fourthly, how can you actually know that? Well, first, you have to stop trying to know. Um, if you have uh, the James chapter 4 in front of you, look at this with me. 
Um, James begins this way. He says, come now, you who say. Now, this is a classic way uh, that Greek writers would begin a rebuke. They would, be, they would start something they're going to press back with, saying, let's reason together. Come now, you who say. He's going to press something against us that we find so normal, we find so uh, uh, typical, but uh, he's going to press back that, that normal thing to us is foolish. I have a friend who uh, owns a condo down by the LAX airport, and we were sitting up there one afternoon <clears throat> just on his roof, spending time together, and uh, we were in mid-conversation, and I, I mean, the plane was so loud, I thought it was going to run into the building. I mean, it just <laughs> right over us, and I, I fell on the floor and dropped my drink in my hand and just go, what was that? And my friend just said, what was what? the plane that almost ran over us in your building. And he just said, oh yeah, I don't even notice it anymore. I mean, James is going to press back against us in something that we don't even notice it anymore. But it's like a 747 that just flies over our condo. And what he says is the way that we think about our future and plans is completely in contradiction to God's will. Look what he says in verse 16. This is what he means. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, is the 747 flying over just the condemn, condemning strategic plans? No. James is not saying, don't think about your future. He's not saying, don't plan. In fact, the book of Proverbs has loads of wisdom about if you don't plan, if you don't think about your future, if you don't think about what's going to happen in life, you yourself are a fool. But what he's talking about here is the manner in which we think about our plans and about what's going to happen in life is always tethered to the illusion of control. And these are the mundane things. I mean, look, look how the, uh, the passage begins. We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. I mean, he's talking about where we, when we will go, where we'll go, what we will do how we will do it. Just very simple, mundane things in life. Yet when we think about them, they're always tethered to our illusion and need for control. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, well, maybe her or maybe him, but I don't struggle with control. Well, let me ask you this. Do you want to live a good life? Do you want your children or your friends or your siblings to have a good life. If you do, you probably struggle with the need for control. I mean, here's some signs you struggle with the need for control. You use a lot of shaming language. That is, somebody decides to do something or is considering something, and your language back to them is, are you sure? I would never do it that way. Maybe for you, good luck with that. Another sign, you use repetitive language. You know, the, the belief that if you tell somebody something enough, and you can reinforce it enough to get the result that you're sure will benefit you and that person the best. And you're sure if you can tell them enough times, it will finally compute enough for them to be competent for the manner. Another sign you struggle with control, you cannot rest. 
Even on off days, you're thinking about work. Even on vacation, it's hard to enjoy it because it takes three or four days just to come down from the pressure of not thinking about your job. But the last few days, even of the vacation, are dreadful because you know what's coming when you get back. And you're sure, if, you, if I begin thinking about this now, if I put enough thought into what's coming, I can control and I can predict and I can predetermine an outcome that will best benefit me and those around me. Another sign you struggle with control, you, you believe fear will change people. That is somebody who is considering some sort of a lifestyle choice, uh, considering a decision, a pursuit of something that you're worried might not benefit them, might not be the wisest. But if you can scare them out of the consequences, then that's the best way for wisdom to come into their life. Another way you use, we struggle with control is we always think people overreact to us. I mean, sometimes the way that we want to control life is not just our jobs or outcomes, but we want to control people. And people will share their feelings with us. People will share ways we've hurt them. People will share things we've said. And we always want to think people are overreacting to us, having an unfair reaction to us. Well, you're just overly sensitive. And it's just a way that we want to control people's reactions, their emotions. We want to control our own image in front of other people's. Listen, we are always, always, in the most simple, mundane things in life, struggling to pursue this illusion of control. Because for us, the wise life is always tethered to the good life. That is, there are things that, are, that we need in life, whether it be a good marriage, whether it be a happy home, whether it be a job that gives me an identity, whether it be a career that people admire. It is tethered to some sort of a belief that if I do this, if I have this, I will be happy. And when you begin to pursue that, you listen, you have to do it with the illusion of control. By necessity. It's the nature of that pursuit in itself. And it's a way to be your own Lord and Savior. Because it's a way to have control of your own life. But if you want to begin to live a wise life, listen, you have to stop trying to pursue everything with the illusion of control. Because secondly, because you can't know it. Because you can't control it. Look what he says in verse 14. He says this, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you admit you're a mist that appears for a little while. Listen, it is foolish to pursue life through the illusion of control because you can't have control. I mean, what, what the pursuit of control is, is it's based on the belief that you can know enough about the future to control the present. But you can't know that. And James is pointing out something that's quite profound and sort of flies over our head, again, like a 747. And then it's that we all presume, whether you believe or you're skeptical, you're agnostic, we all believe that we can be and want to be like God. Thomas Watson, uh, the great Puritan theologian, has this treatise where he talks about what it means uh, to be conformed back into the image of God. He says, when you become Christian, what will happen to you is God, uh, through his spirit, begins to mold you back into 
his image and his character and what God would be like in his image on this earth. But here's the thing, and this is what Watson says is so profound. There are two aspects of God's character. There are what's called his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. Now, this is theological language, so hang with me for like 30 seconds. But Watson says, listen, the one side of God's character, God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-sovereign. He can control things. He can know what the future is going to be like. And on the other side of his character, his, incommun- or his, excuse me, his communicable attributes, God is holy. God is loving. God is merciful. God is kind. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in love and grace. And what Watson says is what the Spirit of God is meant to do is to come into your life and conform you into God's communicable attributes, that he is loving, merciful, kind, and gracious. But what we want in our natural state is for God to conform us into his incommunicable attributes. And in our natural state, we all want to be like God this way. We all want to be like his character that is all-knowing, that is all-powerful, that is all-sovereign, that can know the future and can control all things. And Watson says, listen, our pursuit of that is in our natural state, our own way of wanting to be God without God. But we cannot know the future because God has forbidden us to know that because it is only privy to himself. But our pursuit of that both makes us overconfident and simultaneously incredibly anxious. It makes us overconfident because, listen, if we think we can be like God and we can control things and we can know enough, we can do enough research, we can have enough conversations that we can know enough about the future to control the present, that has led to some of the worst war decisions, the worst business decisions, the worst relationship decisions that we've ever made. And I'll just comment on that last one. Um, I have a friend who uh, was in a relationship with a girl, and they felt privy enough to be overly physical and overly emotional because they knew they were going to get married. And now my friend, I'm not making this up, is married to that girl's sister. We think the knowledge of the future is something that we can have, and it frees us enough to know that we can make decisions in the, in the present. Mark Twain, he says it so well, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Thinking that you can have control and you could know enough about it is never something God has made us privy to, but it, makes, it can lead you to some of the worst decisions you can ever make, but it also can make you full of anxiety because what anxiety is birthed out of is, is the assumption that you'll be, you know how life should go. You know what 2018 should look like. You know what this relationship should be. You know how your children should turn out. And so you can do enough in order to make those things happen. But the moment that those plans begin to go sideways, worry kicks in, 
and sleepless nights begin. Because here's actually the reality of life. 2018, and your recent history here in Santa Barbara, has sort of awakened you to this in a way that the rest of our culture is still dead asleep on. Life is going to throw you some waves. And you have two choices in life. You can either curse them or you can kiss them. But if you think you know how life should go, and you think you know how people's lives and your fruition should turn out this year, every wave that doesn't go the way that you want it to go will be something that you curse. And the problem with that is it sends you into a life of bitterness and frustration. Because, listen, the pursuit of God's character in his incommunicable attributes, it's not just that it's wrong, it's self-destructive. And it will only turn you into somebody who is bitter, angry, always a control freak, and full of worry. And so James says, stop pursuing that because you can't be that. But thirdly, he tells us, actually, here's what you can know about your life. Look in verse 15. He says this, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. Now, there's a lot in that text, but I think this is what um, is, is so important for us, or especially in modern evangelicalism. He does not say, if the Lord wills, we will know this or that. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And this language is so important because when many people think about making decisions in their life and they think about critical paths, we use language like, well, I need to seek the Lord's will and then I can determine what I will do. And inherent in that language is sort of a belief that there's something that you can learn, there's something that you can know, there's something that can be revealed to you that will help you then make a right and wise decision. But listen, that's in contradiction to the exact same thing that James just told us not to pursue. Here's what you can know for your life going forward. There's nothing more you need to know right now in your life in order to make the best decisions and to think wisely about your future. I mean, the prophet Micah says, excuse me, Micah has said, he has shown you, O man, he has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. To love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with your God. The author of Hebrews says that he has revealed himself He has finally spoken. God has said his final word to us in the person of Christ to the point where Peter can comment on that in his letter and said, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. It looks like this. All of you are probably going to have some decision that you have to make in the next three years. And it's going to be a big one. Should we move here or should we stay here? Should I leave this job or should I stay with this job? Should I marry this girl or should I stay with this person? Should we have another child? Should we stop our family? And we think about those decisions 
as if A or B can set the course of our life. And we, we have to make the right decision because if we make the wrong one and we take the wrong crossroads, that our whole life can be set off. But that's not what James is saying here. James is actually saying it doesn't matter if you go A or B, if you stay with him or her, if you do this or that. He says what matters, and this is all you need to know, is how you will be as a person if you do A or B. See, this is, this is the critical issue for making decisions and thinking about your life. Can we live with control? Can we not live with control? You don't need to, you don't need to know. Because the question is not, will you stay in Santa Barbara or will you move to New York City? It's, will you be a thankful person if you move there or stay here? Will you be a merciful person if you move there or stay here? Will you be a generous person if you move there or stay here. And James is trying to say, that is the approach to wisdom. Listen, the, the crucial questions in your life are not the critical details of whether or not you will do A or B, but how you will do A or B. And that's all you need to know in order to live a wise life. But fourthly and lastly, how can we do this? How do we begin to live uh, this wise life? How can we know that? Because while we can't have control, while we can't know the future, we still have to think about our life. The book of Proverbs tells us uh, to plan, to pursue, to think diligently, diligently about our life. But we can't do it pursuing control. And what James is going to give us is, is he gives us this nuanced balance that it really is so far out in front of us, all of us are going to have to stretch to catch up to it. And, and this is the balance that we have to think about our lives. I mean, if, if you have, I mean, a job opportunity that will pull you away from this community, I, I encourage you to have conversations with people. You should think long and hard and diligently about that and do your research. But you're going to have to make that decision with this in mind. You're going to have to say to yourself, come what may, yet we may obey. That you're going to make critical things in life but you're going to have to decide with the disposition that says, come what may, yet we may obey. That no matter what happens, we will begin to be faithful in life. And how can you do that? Well, this is the nugget for this text. Look back in verse 14. When James says this, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It sounds so cynical almost. Um, and nihilistic and, and, and harsh, but this is really gracious language. What is your life? You are a mist. This is a sobering, yet a incredibly freeing reality to embrace. And here's the image. And it, 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 it's not cold enough here, but if you move to the East Coast, and in the middle of the night, in the winter, you go outside, and you breathe a breath of air, you'll see your breath, and then in an instant, it's gone. And James is saying, that's what life is like. And unless you understand that, you are out of touch with reality. Uh, last year, uh, I, I, I thought it was one of the best movies of the year, was um, Natalie Portman's portrayal of Jackie Kennedy. Um, she played movie Jackie. 
And if you haven't seen it, it's just about her and the days leading after uh, JFK's assassination. And so um, it's after he's been assassinated and she's in the back of a hearse with some of the staff and she's talking to the driver and she's thinking about her life. And she realizes, you know, she built her whole identity, she built her whole life on uh, being married to this incredibly successful McMahon. And they were the most powerful, young, impressive couple that the country really had ever seen. Because no one had been president at that youth of age. No one had been admired like that as a president and loved him. And everybody knew them. And she was Jackie Kennedy. And they were on top of the world. And in a moment, her husband's killed. And she's in the back of this hearse. And she looks at the driver and she says, Do you know who William McKinley is? And he says, I have no idea who that is. She said, do you know who James Garfield is? She said, and he said, I have no idea who that is. She said, they were dead presidents who were killed in office. And she realizes, not only is my identity from this person just immediately taken away, even his legacy that might have been able to give me some sort of sense of life, some sort of sense of person some sort of sense of who I am in this world, that's gone immediately. And she, literally the rest of the movie is her inability to cope with that sobering reality. That life is but a mist and it's here and it's gone tomorrow. And C.S. Lewis has this incredible essay where he talks about, uh, it's called Life in an Atomic Age. And he says this, he says, look, there are oceans of time before you. And there's going to be oceans of time after you. Oceans and oceans. And whether you commit genocide, whether you heal, you know, hundreds of thousands of people by curing a disease, whether you're the most successful politician, you know, the the world has seen in this generation, whether you're the most successful artist uh, any of us have seen in two or three hundred years, You are but a drop in oceans and oceans and oceans and oceans of time. And whatever you do in this world, it will not matter. Because there's going to be oceans and oceans and oceans of time after you. And unless you understand that, you are out of touch with reality. That anything you do in this world will not matter unless this person called Jesus really will rise from the grave and take everything that ever happened in this world and perfect it into the glorification of this world. You understand that you, everything in your life is out of touch with reality unless that is true. And Jackie Kennedy, Kennedy could not handle it. Can you handle it? Can you face that and handle that? Because what, here's where wisdom for your life flows out of. This nugget, life is but a drop. What is your life? And so what James and C.S. Lewis are challenging us to do and what they're pleading with us to do is to think about not making decisions in light of what will give me social status next month. What will make my kids well off in 20 years? What will give me the best life now for 2018? Those decisions are based on the foolish knowledge that you can control the future, 
that what you can pursue will give you a life and identity that you can hold on to, and it's never going to go away. But what James and C.S. Lewis were saying, make decisions that will profit your soul five million years from now. Because what the, if the resurrection really is true, here's what this means. There are things that you can decide to do in 2018 that will still bear fruit five million years from now. How amazing is this? What if there is something in your life that you chose to do this year that was completely about the kingdom of God and you made that decision because you realized life is but a drop, it's here, it's gone tomorrow and there are certain things that are going to last forever and there are other things that are here and they're gone like breath, cold breath in the middle of a cold night. What if you made a decision this year that was built on that kingdom perspective in five million years from now? You saw people walking around this glorified earth still benefiting from that thing. Because if you did that, that would be wisdom. Life is but a mist. And how in the world can you begin to do that freely only if you know living water? Jesus once looked at a woman who was a complete fool. She was giving her life to man after man after man after man. And he said, woman, come to me. Because what I offer you is living water. And then he stood up in front of a bunch of religious people. And he said, anybody who comes to me, anyone who thirsts and comes to me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. That is, out of his heart will flow the streams of wisdom, that the ability to make decisions that are not based on the foolish, temporary, unfounded, ungrounded things in this world, but make decisions based on things that will last forever. Because what, what Jesus did that's so beautiful is he resisted the thing that none of us, Thomas Watson says, can resist. I mean, the devil brought him up and said, if you confess my name, I will give you the control of everything. And when he was on the cross, and they said, they mocked him. And they said, get yourself down. I mean, all of us, when we're in pressure moments in life, the ability to control the situation, the knowledge of what is to come, is something we crave and lust for in that moment. And all of us would probably give in if the ability was there. But Jesus, on the moment on the cross, resisted the illusion of control. And he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Which means this, when you say life is, life is but a drop, it's gone here, it's today, and it's gone tomorrow. And you realize, I control none of life, what the cross says is there is a will behind the lack of control and that will loves you. And it is sealed for you in the cross. Look, life is here, it's gone tomorrow. This is real freedom. Because what the illusion of control doesn't tell you, what it blinds you to is to realize Look, all the great things that have happened in your life. Malcolm Gladwell kind of talks about this in his book, uh, the, tipping, the Tipping Point. 
he says, you know, things that made certain companies work well, it wasn't that they just did two things. It was like tens of thousands of things kind of worked together to come together to make that thing work. And do you, do you realize how you found your spouse or how you got this job? It wasn't that you just applied and one thing happened and you did it well. There were thousands of things going on in this world that God worked every single little thing together in order to bring this person in your life, in order to bring these children together, in order to bring this job for you. Isn't it freeing to know that you don't have to give an account for those tens of thousands of things and you don't have to go figure out 10,000 things this week in order to do the one thing that you need to be faithful for in life? Listen, God has freed you from that burden and said, here's all you need to know this week. I am good. I am in control. Follow me. Look, he, Jesus, the, the world will, t- Jesus first the world. The world will come to you and say, here's how you live a wise life. Make perfect decisions so that it will give you a good life and you're therefore wise. Jesus will never give you that burden. He will say, this is my Father's world. Come to me, all you who are burdened with your life. I will never, ever, ever put the burden of calculating tens of thousands of things in order for life to go well for you in your hands. I've got it. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to him right now in this moment and be set free for the rest of your year to live a wise life, not needing control, but wisely thinking about your future. Let's pray together.